Radio Mano Papachango. Chris, this is Doro from Port Angeles, Washington. I met you in Seattle a few weeks ago, which was great. And um, I'm right now in Wisconsin, in Black River Falls, where I work with the Ho-Chunk people to um, do a dictionary for their language, which is highly endangered. There's only like 30 people left that speak it. Um, and today, during the workshop, I was reminded of you because we uh, came across a word uh, to translate, which was uh, the one to go on a tangent. And uh, I just thought I wanted to share that with you um, and uh, give a shout out to you. So the word is hite maneni. And um, that's how you say tangentially speaking in Ho-Chunk. Keep up the good work, love what you do. Thanks, bye. Namaste Chris, Alma here again, but this time coming to you from India, uh, on your recommendations. Uh, I'm in Mysore at the moment doing some yoga and I am leaving to go to Bangalore tomorrow. Um, listening to you as I plodder along on my little travels. Um, big shout out to everybody in tangentially speaking world. Um, have a good one. Namaste. Hola, Tangentialistas and Chris. This is Kiana. I'm coming to you from the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Um, I am single-handing my 41-foot catamaran in tandem with my partner and his crew on his 73-foot catamaran. And we are crossing from BVI to Portugal. Uh, yesterday was day seven. And at sunset, my mast came down. Uh, it was not very exciting. And today we put up a jury rig and it looks beautiful and seems to be holding really well. Um, I had to make a decision whether to veer off to Bermuda uh, and figure my chances out there. Probably have to fly back to the US somewhere, I don't know, or head on to Portugal. Uh, I wish I was closer, but I still have a couple more weeks to go and Portugal it will be. So if you are listening to this, I have made it. <laughs> I wish you all a wonderful time doing whatever it is that you're doing and just fucking do it anything whatever you got this thank you so much ladies very nice to hear from everybody uh normally i try to spread the women out in these intros because i probably get um you know two dudes for every woman so i try to keep the ratio going but in this case the all three of those just came in recently and uh i thought i'd throw them all in together because everybody's on their adventures thank you so much uh yeah we met doro in uh, in seattle at the get together and uh kiana reached out 
Uh, she spends part of the time, part of her year living on her catamaran and then every once in a while goes up to Humboldt, uh, I guess in the summers and works up there, um, taking care of the house for a couple of young women pool sharks. Uh, really interesting. It was fun to hang with them for a night and, and meet the pool sharks and hang with Kiana. And And Kiana mentioned that she was going to be sailing across the Atlantic by herself. And of course, we've been worried about her ever since. So it was really nice to get that message a couple of days ago that she made it, uh, at least as far as the Azores, which is uh, almost all the way to Portugal. Uh, thank you everybody for listening. This episode is with a couple of guys who, um, medical doctors who work with ketamine in, um, different therapeutic settings. Nathan and Sunil are very thoughtful, um, about, as you'll see about the, the various issues that come up with unconventional treatment protocols, uh, whether we're talking about ketamine or um, THC or psychedelics of various kinds or uh, MDMA, all of these substances have great potential, as we've talked about many times on the podcast, but also um, potential downsides that need to be looked at and managed carefully, not only for the uh, person receiving the treatment, but for the people giving the treatment. I think it's a sort of an overlooked issue how medications affect not only the recipient but the provider. And this is something that's recognized in shamanic societies where generally it's the provider, that is the shaman, who takes the substance in order to have an experience um, in which he or she can move between worlds and find the problem and then come back and report that problem. Um, you know, in what we're seeing in the Amazon and Peru and, and um, in Brazil is more the recipients taking the ayahuasca, but traditionally and sort of typically in shamanic societies, it's the shaman. That takes the substance. Before I get into my ranting and raving, I wanted to mention that this episode is brought to you by Sunbasket. Um, and if you haven't signed up yet, I would really encourage you to give them a try. If you live in the United States, those of you who are outside the United States, uh, please fast forward or just bear with me for a few minutes. Um, you know, having lived in Spain so long, uh, I find it really annoying when people who work in media assume that everybody is American listening. So I don't want to do that to you. <laughs> I know that a good proportion of the people listening to this podcast are outside of the U.S. And uh, I really appreciate you and appreciate the, the global nature of this experience and this community. So I don't want you to feel that I'm ignoring you. But I got this sponsor... Sunbasket, and they're excellent, and at the moment they only work in the U.S. But if you're in the U.S., uh, it's kind of a no-brainer. If you go to sunbasket.com forward slash T-S, tangentially speaking, um, you get $30 off your first two orders. And given the fact that an order is about $60, bucks, um, that's half off. 
and you end up paying about five bucks per meal per portion. Uh, so that's ten bucks for two people. Now I don't know where you're going to go to a restaurant and spend two bucks for two people. I don't think you could get a small burrito without sour cream or guacamole or lettuce or tomato for five bucks. Uh, you might get one slice and a glass of ice water, a slice of pizza, no pepperoni uh, for under five bucks. Uh, I'm not sure, depending where you live. But let's face it, five bucks is a pretty good price for a delicious meal that you basically cook yourself with assistance of the experts. And you know, not only is it a delicious meal, but they're using organic produce, uh, clean ingredients. It comes already measured out. All Everything you need, all the spices, everything is there. All you need is a fire, a pan, and a spatula, I guess, is pretty much all you need. So seriously, check out sunbasket.com forward slash TS. There's no obligation. It's not a subscription thing. Or, you know, Nobody's holding on to you for a year. You can do the, the first two orders with your $30 off each of them, saving 60 bucks altogether. And then if it doesn't work for you, just cancel it. No problem. No big deal. Uh, nobody's going to come and strangle your dog. Probably not. I don't think so. Uh, and if they do, let me know. Sunbasket.com forward slash TS. Now, back to the news. I'm kind of out of touch a little bit with the news because I'm not in phone range a lot uh, up in various mountain ranges. And that's pretty wonderful. But right now I'm in Denver, and uh, the news is mass killings. Again, mass killings in the United States. Angry young men shooting foreigners, shooting women, shooting into crowds, shooting strangers, shooting themselves. It's um, it's pretty amazing. And uh, I posted something on Instagram earlier. Uh, which was just an illustration that I saw somewhere else. And it was um, somebody, it was Uncle Sam protecting the NRA, basically. And, you know, it's interesting. You see the um, the arguments that come up against this. And, you know, a lot of it is, well, it's a mental health issue. It's not a gun issue. Or... Um, okay, you want to make guns illegal? Well, more people die from cars than from guns, so are you going to make cars illegal? Um, you know, you see the same sort of lame-ass responses again and again and again, and they're not, I'm sorry to say this, and they're not intelligent responses. They're not, uh, you know, cars are necessary uh, to the modern way of life in the United States. Guns aren't, certainly not assault rifles. Uh, I don't think people should be driving Ferraris at 200 miles an hour on city streets. Um, that doesn't mean I want to ban all cars. You know, it's the same technique of sort of taking someone's argument and making it an absurdity so you can shoot it down. Um, which is not to say that there aren't valid arguments on both sides of this issue as there are on all issues um you know personally the the argument i find most compelling on the pro-gun side is 
that the Second Amendment was instituted as a way of building in protection against tyranny. So if people are armed or have access to arms, and remember the arms that people were being guaranteed a right to at the time of that the Second Amendment was was instigated were muzzle loaders, muskets, things like that, which, you know, we laugh and say, oh, those are, you know, primitive weapons compared to what we have now. And of course they are. But the point is that they were basically the same weapons that were available to soldiers. Uh, I guess they had cannons, which I don't know if people were allowed to purchase cannons at that point. I think not. Um, But certainly the weapon that um, frontiersmen had was the same as the weapon that an infantryman had. So the point was, if you have an armed populace that are armed pretty much the same as the military, it's going to be virtually impossible to impose a tyranny upon that population. Now, that makes sense to me, but that's not the case now. We, the people, are not armed in any way comparable to what the military is. So, unless you're going to offer, you know, gun shows in which people can buy shoulder-launched missiles and drones with um, air-to-surface missiles and, um, you know, nuclear-tipped warheads and the rest of it, then that argument doesn't hold water. If Donald Trump declares martial law and the military goes along with it, no number of rednecks with their AKs or AR-15s or whatever they have are going to stand up to that. It's just a fantasy. So that argument is out the window. Um, anybody who, who would like to think about this, who hasn't seen Jim Jeffries' stand-up bit about weapons, um, I really recommend it. It's on YouTube. Just go to YouTube and search Jim Jeffries' gun control. It's about a 15-minute bit, and it is fucking brilliant. It is funny. Of course, it's tragic as well because we know what we're talking about. But it's very funny and it's very rational. He brings up every one of these arguments that people make. You know, well, I'm a safe gun owner or I keep my guns, you know, locked away or, uh, you know, I need to protect my family or whatever the arguments are. We've all heard them. Um, He sort of takes them on one at a time and and not a straw man argument he i think he does a a reasonable job of representing them and responding to them so jim jeffries gun control on youtube highly recommended okay in other news got a new engine in the van cost fourteen thousand dollars for the engine the labor a new fan uh got the air conditioner fixed so I'm married to this van. This is going to be my van till I wreck it or a meteor strikes it or I'm dead or whatever. Um, you know, I was sort of sometimes thinking, well, maybe this is a dry run. Maybe I'll get a new van down the road. 
I probably have another 200,000 miles uh, before I start having troubles with this engine. Well, I had the troubles and got a brand new Mercedes engine in there. So hopefully it's going to run for 500,000 miles. And um, so now I'm I'm much more invested in the van. I always was, honestly, because Oliver and I did the build out together and became friends in the process. So it's uh, it's very sort of sentimental uh project and and i would hate to give it up and so now i am intending never to give it up so uh instead i'm going to keep tweaking it and come up with new design things and attend to the rust spots and i don't know maybe get a wrap or paint it or something because uh, it looks kind of looks kind of shitty um but i love it so that's the situation with the van uh other news, I was up in the mountains uh, two nights ago, up around Rocky Mountain National Park. Found a place to camp. It's really hard uh, on weekends. It's amazing how many people there are and how just population is the problem. Population seems to underlie every other problem, whether it's pollution or corruption or um traffic just every problem i see comes down to population and it's funny how you know you read these news articles um you know about what a problem it is that population is leveling off and oh my god what are we going to do negative growth you know we need to grow it needs to grow the economy needs to grow the population needs to grow 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 it's the ideology of a cancer cell right there. Growth is not the point. Sustainability is the point. Uh, balance is the point. Keep, you know, get a good thing and keep it going. That's the point. Not grow, 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 grow. Hunter-gatherer, world global population under hunter-gatherers remained basically the same for about 100,000 years. Only with the advent of agriculture did that population start increasing exponentially. And people still haven't wrapped their heads around the fact that that cannot continue. Anyway, I was uh, in this beautiful area um, up in the mountains uh, on National Forest land. Found a, a spot to camp along this little stream. And my God, the fucking mosquitoes were everywhere. They are... They were just swarming. I don't think I've ever seen mosquitoes as insistent as these guys. I mean, they laughed at any kind of spray. They laughed at those coils and candles and all that shit. They just totally ignored them. And they, they didn't even, like, hover around for a while like mosquitoes normally do. They just went right at you, just zoop right in. And, you, you know, swat it, and it would be right back. And it led me to think a couple of things. First of all, what were all those mosquitoes going to do if we hadn't shown up? You know, they were all there. They didn't come with us. They were all there. What, what were they, where were they going to find their blood? I mean, there were like some squirrels around, maybe. Uh, I don't know what else. I mean, there might be a moose somewhere. Like, do they all go and just suck moose blood? And, you know, can a mosquito actually puncture moose hide? Uh, I don't know. What is their plan B? 
if a couple of, you know, city folk don't show up and get their blood sucked, what is the plan? I don't understand what mosquitoes do. I really don't understand mosquitoes at all. I, they are the only living thing that I take pleasure in killing, I have to say. Um, you know, if, if I had to be a hunter, I guess I'd be a mosquito hunter. Hard to do with, um, you know, bow and arrow or a rifle or any other cool equipment, but I do enjoy killing mosquitoes and I, I really dislike them. So anyway, that led to the other thing, which is like, you know, people write to me and say, oh, I'm so inspired, you know, the way you're living, traveling around in the van, that's so cool, it must feel great, and I don't know. And yeah, it does, it feels great and it is uh, free and easy and there, there are aspects of it um, that I really love. I've been on the road three months now and I don't miss anything other than my friends and family in LA, but I don't miss anything about having an apartment. Um, I'm really happy this way and just sort of moving around and um, meeting friends, uh, both friends that I've met in the past and friends I haven't met in the past. And I'm talking to you now. You know, I had an, I did another meetup last night in Boulder. We did one in Golden a week ago, and then we just did one in uh, in Boulder last night. I don't know, 25, 35, 40 people. I, I don't know how many people showed up. Everybody's great. Everybody is so fucking cool, man. And it's so nice to introduce you listeners to each other. And uh, there were people there last night who had met each other at the meetup we did in Boulder a year ago and they were friends and they'd been hanging out and you know they'd uh, a relationship that started a year ago had developed into a friendship and now they were back and it's just so fucking cool to see that happen and to see how you know the the quality of people who are listening to this podcast and come out um, to meet each other it makes me fucking proud I'll tell you it brings a tear to my eye but I wanted to say that not everything is great about living in the van. Uh, I wanted to cop to some of the negatives, and uh, I made a little list here. Let me grab my phone. If things start ringing and buzzing, uh, that's my phone, not yours. Um, yeah, let's see. Where's the... Uh, oh, here, I made the list. Mosquitoes. Worst things about van life. Mosquitoes, definitely, number one. They're not everywhere, but man, there are a lot of them. Smoke. Hey, I love campfires, but the fucking smoke is everywhere. It gets in your face, gets in your hair, gets in your clothes, gets in your sheets, gets in the van. Um, so if you don't like the smell of smoke or you're allergic to it or something, that's kind of a, a problem. The hassle of cooking. Uh, you know... I keep thinking that what I want to do is find a beautiful spot and just sit there for a week, set up the, the tables and the, the, uh, camp stove and the smoker and get everything out and set up and then just hang out. I want to do that. That's my ambition. Um, but so far I haven't been able to, I, I spend a night, maybe two nights, max three, and then we're back on the road again. And so it's, you know, set up, tear down, set up, tear down. And it's a lot easier in a van because you're not dealing with uh, getting out sleeping bags and sleeping pads and tents and all that. Um, but it's still a bit of a hassle. And so because of that, 
you, or at least I, don't do as much cooking as I should. And so I end up eating in restaurants more, which is expensive and not healthy and, um, yeah, not the way I really want to do this. So uh, the hassle of, you know, even in the morning, like, oh, okay, I want a coffee. Well, I could get out the stove. I could set it up. I could boil some water. I could grind the coffee. I could do blah, 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 all that stuff. Uh, or I could just drive down the road a little bit to the first cafe I come to, and then I go in there, and then it's like, oh, bacon and eggs and an omelet, and blah, blah, blah. and then 30 bucks later, you've had breakfast, where I've got bacon and eggs and coffee in the van. I just uh, It was just too much of a hassle to set it all up. So that's uh, another negative of... This van life, or at least the way I'm doing it. Of course, mechanical problems are an issue, uh, especially at the moment when you hear a weird sound in there. It's like, oh, this is not just my vehicle that may be fucked. This is my house that may be fucked. And, um, yeah, I may have to pull over to the side of the road and be out of a house and a vehicle. Uh, And who knows what kind of expenses are involved with that so that's that's always an issue uh dust i go down a lot of dirt roads and there's a lot of dust that comes off those roads and it sticks all over the place and it gets inside and it you know gets in your sheets and your clothes uh and weekends which gets back to the earlier issue about population you know in colorado Looking for a place to camp on a weekend is a real issue, at least uh, up around Denver and Boulder in this area. And I was three hours west of here, and it was still totally saturated on the weekend. I didn't find it like that in Montana, Idaho. It was a lot easier to find places to to chill out. Um, But down here in Colorado, it's a lot more crowded. Anyway, that's my report on van life, Uh, some of the negatives. Of course, if I listed the positives to you, there would be far more of them. Um, And, you know, as a net, it's definitely, for me, it's definitely a big positive. I think I'm going to sign off now and get into this episode uh, with these guys. Um, They talk about the clinic and the work they're doing and... and, um, It's been, uh, I don't know, maybe a month, six weeks since I recorded it. So I don't remember all the specifics of what we talk about, but I remember being extremely impressed with them. And uh, I'm sure you will be too. The kind of therapy that they're doing uh, has been a long time coming. And I'm really happy to have lived long enough to see this change in American society, accepting these sorts of therapies involving ketamine and MDMA and psilocybin and coming to you. I think I'm going to mention I'm in a park in Denver where psilocybin has recently been decriminalized. So happy to see these things happening. It's been a long time coming, as I say, which is my cheesy way of segueing into the song, which is Long Time Coming by Leela James. Man, it's almost like she's like a female James Brown in this song. It's such a funky tune. Hope you enjoy it. Bye. Long 
Seattle, Washington. The sun has just come out. Uh, it's been drizzling for days here. I'm here with Nathan. What's your last name? Schmidt. Nathan Schmidt. It's easy to remember. And Sunil Agarwal. Less easy to remember, but I'll give it a shot. And you guys are from the what? It's 
called the Advanced Integrative Medical Science Institute or AIMS. AIMS, here in the, Seattle. Yeah, and and you guys are doing. My understanding is you're sort of cutting edge integrative therapy uh, using uh, ketamine. Is is that the main thing you're doing these days? Correct. Yeah, we um, are using it in many different ways under like the psycholytic model and the psychedelic model to try to really help people with kind of treatment resistant depressions that we feel like are largely kind of tied to the spiritual as well. Hmm. Interesting. And you're a, a you have a PhD in nurse practitioner. How yeah, does that work? So it's uh, I got a doctorate in nursing, and uh, and I'm also a nurse practitioner. So it's just kind of under the nursing umbrella. I can do what a psychiatrist does, but just uh-huh. you know get paid less. Yeah. <laughs> right. But then again, I didn't have to go to med school, so I'm not I'm not I'm not angry. Right. <laughs> but you did have to get a PhD, which is still a pain in the ass. It's close to a PhD. It's it's somewhere in between kind of a master's and a PhD. Oh, it's okay. A, a DNP they call it. DNP. A doctorate. It's confusing. And you specialize in in um, mental health. Uh, psychiatric nurse. Cor- correct. First, okay. I was like a psychi- psychiatric nurse. I worked in the psych ERs, you know, seeing some really brutal things and people in, in low positions. And then I went and got more schooling um, to be able to prescribe. And then by prescribing, I slowly figured out that I didn't really want to prescribe much anymore. Right. Yeah. Well, you probably know my wife's a psychiatrist who has basically given up yeah. that aspect of her, her uh, practice. She's she feels that the medications are almost always unnecessary and often damaging. Definitely. I mean, I think only in acute cases and, you know, very acute self-destructive self-harming kind of situations. I think. Sure. I mean, if you're getting so manic, you're ruining your life every few months, or if you're just being tortured by voices, you know, I think there's some utility. Yeah. Um, But for your average, you know, addiction, trauma, you know, personality issues, I feel like, you know, the only way past is through and that which you resist persists. And that's a good one. That which you resist persists. And yeah, I always think of it as facing the dragons. Yeah. You have to turn and face the monster that's chasing you. <laughs> exactly. And by just putting the bullets, uh, the uh, band-aids on bullet wounds, it almost, I think in the long term, makes it harder for people to get, get through. I mean, not in all circumstances, but it's... Uh, think if you're going to use them responsibly you know maybe as a cast and then you take them mm, off but most of the right. time there's no plan people stay on them indefinitely right. and then they they stop working it's adding more meds on top of meds to manage side effects and then people have been on five meds for six years and nothing's working and then they can't get off of them and it's then they're in hell yeah, yeah. And, and there's not a lot my understanding is there's not a lot of research on how all these different medications interact yeah and, and plus there's just the doctors don't have the time. A lot of these are started by primary care doctors, and it's polypharmacy. They spend right. 15 minutes. They can't really get their story. And then they have poor distress tolerance, too, and, you know, to no, no fault of their own. They're just trying to, you know, do their job. Sure. Um, but they, they give you a Zoloft prescription in 15 minutes, and then but maybe you have some other condition, or maybe it's not right. the right med. or um, Yeah. So it's, it's a big problem. Yeah. And Sunil, you're an MD, right? I'm an MD, yeah. And, and what's your, are you a psychiatrist? Or what's your I specialized in physical medicine and rehabilitation and then hospice and palliative medicine. I've got oh. two certifications. My interest has been driven by um, improving quality of life in chronic and serious and terminal illness. Hmm. And, 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 and along the way, I've definitely 
hung out and integrated with mental health specialists and rota- sure. extra rotations and training. So kind of trauma-informed, mentally health-integrated um, pain and palliative and rehabilitation medicine is my my interest. And I've, uh, over the years, I've gotten more interested in integrative approaches, working with other specialists like naturopathic doctors. We have an excellent naturopathic uh, training institute in Washington called the Bastyr University, which... Um, I was able to work with a professor over there, Dr. Standish, and we started this Ames Institute last year to try to put our types of medicine together and also to do push the edge envelope in terms of our research. Mm. She She's doing research on ayahuasca, and mm. um, one of the few, actually probably the only person to hold an FDA uh, investigational new drug um, application for ayahuasca, oh, really? which means that she can potentially, once they get additional um, clearances out of the way, uh, give it to human beings in a legal fashion. Wow. Is she supported by MAPS? She is now. They've just, just signed an agreement, um, a fiscal sponsorship. Right. So we can raise money for her research, which is really, she's been self-funding for years and no years. Kidding. Growing plants, doing basic testing of wow. how to actually extract and measure the um, active compounds and, you know, to try to develop a model that will make sense to the usual establishment of medicine. Yeah, yeah. And that's so hard to bridge something like that. Because... You know, I know to the FDA it's a new treatment protocol, but it's got thousands of years of history. It's like building a bridge between like two skyscrapers, (laughs) you know, on the top floor. It's it's weird. It's already established. There's so much knowledge, but it's not the kind of knowledge the FDA requires. That's right. That's right. And then plus there's the whole cultural appropriation thing, too, that always, you know, gets brought up if, if this does go through and... So how do you respect that lineage and not piss people off and yeah. stay stay true to the tradition? Because there's so much wisdom, you know, yeah. behind it. But also how to do these channels so then it can spread and you know, kind of help everybody. What do you guys think about that? The you know I live in Topanga, mm-hmm. California, most of the year. Uh, it's probably one of the ayahuasca hotspots of North America. The, you know they're doing ayahuasca ceremonies every fucking weekend back there. I'm uh-huh. sure. Um, you know, and Joshua Tree. And I mean, it's all over the place now. Mm. First time I did ayahuasca was probably 96, something like that. And people still didn't know what it was. Mm. Um, but what do you, how do you feel? Do you think there is something inherently healing in the substance? Or do you think the healing is more located in the ritual and the... Mm context because a lot of people say ayahuasca itself has like an identity you know that it seeks out that which you really need to look at how do you feel about that that's a a great question um my answer is largely informed by my experience in the santo daimi i've been i've been in it for about a year now Mm. i I had a health condition explain what santo daimi yeah so the santo daimi is basically um there is it, it takes Christianity and sort of indigenous wisdom and it meshes it together. It uh, was formed by this guy, his name is uh, Mestre Irinu, where he was a black rubber tapper and he started drinking ayahuasca with the indigenous people. And he was a Christian man. And it 
it was kind of this integration where he started drinking the ayahuasca and then um, going into the forest alone and then he'd commune with certain beings and entities and the whole belief system of the doctrine or, i mean of the santo daimi is that the the songs that come from these beings are sort of the doctrine so basically there's christian elements where there's tra- traditional hail mary our fathers kind of said but then most of um they call them works are done with um, the singing a lot of songs in Portuguese. So um, that, that's what it is. And, and they sued the, the government and they won the legal right to do this. In that, Brazil. Um, actually, a guy named Jonathan Gold, uh, Goldsmith and um, Goldman. Goldman. And then um, Alexandra Bliss, who's down in Portland, um, those two churches they unified and to sue the government and the, the government just came totally unprepared they, the they, government of the united states yes oh, oh. and they won uh, they had to go to court three times and then the the third time they won so they have they, they have the right to uh, you know to legally oh, drink okay. it because they, they had to prove that. first of all that they were religion and it's yeah. like well yeah you're yes definitely a, a religion but you have to prove that the um that it requires the use of the sacrament um that that, that, that they're integral so I know that's kind of a long way to answer answer your question, but what I've learned is that so much of it is is the container, the ritual, the music, um, and just the wisdom behind it, and the, the medicine, and the community, and then mm-hmm. and then you, because because yeah. we're the medicine too. Right. It's it's, it's so complicated because you see people drink it in more indigenous ways, um, but. It just seems like that ceremonial context is, is so important, and it's all based on some sort of like song, ritual, and someone with a lot of wisdom who who, who guides it. So, but if you don't speak Portuguese, do the songs have power? Yeah. Um, so when I first came in, I was like, oh, you know, I just want to drink ayahuasca. You, you know, legally, I have this health condition. I heard it was great for the gut because you know, in um, in Brazil or um, Peru or you know that's the medicine they don't have all all these other things um, it has all these intestinal effects so I just went and at first it seems almost kind of cult like you know everybody wears white and they're they're around this this table and there's a cross in the middle and then I have my own you know kind of um, Catholic you know, I, I'm a recovering Catholic right. just just kind of working through all all that so at first I found it you know triggering and a lot of people sure. do like Jesus this yeah. um, but then what I learned by staying open though is that it, it didn't really matter you just start singing the songs and the Portuguese comes to you and and I kind of it, it feels like they change the intensity of the medicine kind of like when the shaman plays the Icaros right. in like a traditional ceremony it's it's like it's almost like this is the, the Icaros, and they play these, they're called maracas, and and uh, they, they keep this, this rhythm through the whole time and seeing the Portuguese. So as you're having the experience with the, the medicine, it, it kind of grounds you and anchors you in, and you're able to kind of focus, and you feel supported and held. It's called like a current. Mm. Um, and then there's areas, if it gets overwhelming, you can go on the outside, but that current keeps you safe. And I've done it in an indigenous way, too. Um, but I think it's, there's so much in like the container and protection and wisdom um, that that may be really hard to translate into kind of the scientific research. But mm-hmm. I think I think it's possible. Yeah, yeah. So, so if if I understand you correctly, you find that the healing qualities of ayahuasca are present both in the substance and in the ritual that you've experienced with Santo Daime. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It's, it's it's inseparable, really. Yeah, I when I first 
encountered ayahuasca, it was with Unido de Vegetal, mm-hmm. with the UDV, which is the other approved church in Brazil that I think there are only the two of them, no? Yes. Yeah, that uh, have government approval to to use it. It much less ritualistic, the UDV experience I had anyway. It was yeah. a, nobody, there were no outfits and no mm-hmm. Christ. And it was basically just drink it and sit in a darkened room for a few hours and have the experience Mm -hmm. and then uh, the mestre sort of led a discussion and people could ask questions and you know uh, interpret their experiences and stuff yeah quite interesting what do you think Sunil yeah um, I mean I think that we do have a great emphasis in our culture on drugs and medicines being the like that's that's all where all the healing is at and mm. um i think even our renaissance and psychedelics medicine that's happening we can fall into that trap all you need is a, a good dose of you know psilocybin or mm. ayahuasca and you know or even any any lsd but really um uh, group psychotherapy models that we understand about set and setting that they were talking about in the 60s it's equally important mm-hmm. and it's it's uh, it's about having a, a complete medicine experience you know right. where it's you set your intentions you are well held and you're supported through the process what we learned at our recent training with the maps where they're doing mdma assisted psychotherapy now in phase three studies and all around the world actually is they spend a lot of time preparing people. Like you spend three 90-minute sessions just ta- making a relationship with the person that you're right. going to take the medicine with. Mm-hmm. Then you spend eight hours with those people while you're taking the medicine, really, really going through things, spending a lot of time, great music, and just just slow medicine. Mm-hmm. And then you go come back and you talk about that for three more 90-minute sessions. Then you go back in again and you do this rinse, lather, repeat over a period of you know, a couple of weeks. and. And that's where you get the 80-plus percent response rates to right. healing trauma. Right. Because we know that the people who didn't do got really like a low dose of the medicine or, or, or placebo, they still got some good therapy, therapeutic mm. relief, just, just going through that kind of spending time with people that are listening to them and helping them tune into their feelings. Yeah. So I think we, we become, because of, the, because of Madison Avenue and marketing, that we, we developed such a pill-for-every-ill approach that that's all medicine really is, is you know and i think certainly i believe in empowering people with the right chemical tools and herbal medicines um but and and i think the way that you know our fda and all that model approaches things it's like okay well we need to know the chemistry what is the substance the substance is important very important uh it's very nice to have a scientific highly highly detailed observational period where we're going to look at every different angle of it because that's the way our culture begins to understand what this is and once we once we have that it's not about saying okay that's the only way to do it is in this highly like reductionist lens it's about saying well what is the way that we make this medicine bring this medicine into the way that we do medicine because they they we have to integrate traditions i think the traditional medicine approaches are wonderful, but they were they are in the context of certain types of cultures, and, right. and everything everything does cross and share. And as long as you're being very respectful of the traditions, that that this is a sacrament. Ayahuasca is a sacrament, just like you know the wine for Catholics is a sacrament. It doesn't mean that nobody else can drink wine and that you can't have a wine and cheese, but it means that when you when you're using it for 
spiritual healing and, and sometimes it's hard to say is this medicine is this spiritual healing or it's a combination of it you have to be respectful of the, of the people that view this as a sacrament to d- to this day which mm. which is a long-standing tradition that goes back generations and generations i think they've they found ayahuasca in a shaman's mummy just the other day and some it was just published you know i think it was from a thousand or a thousand years ago mm. something like that yeah and not a lot survives in in the amazon you know to be found a thousand years later yeah. <laughs> it's probably in peru up in the mountain or something must be yeah yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, you know, you said something interesting. Something you said there struck me. You were um, talking about how we bring ayahuasca into how we practice medicine, but it occurs to me that how we practice medicine is also very slowly changing, thanks to some of the influence of these things. You know, of these traditions, very slowly. But you know, we have people like like you two who did, the, and my wife and. You know, um, I'm going to be visiting with Andrew Weil in a couple of weeks, um, you know, a pioneer in this, right? Who went to Harvard, National Institutes of Health, like he checked all those fucking boxes, but he still never renounced the healing properties of psychedelics. I admire him immensely for that. Oh, he was, yeah, he was a definite pioneer. He did the first controlled study of cannabis at uh, Boston University, you know, uh, where he got to use placebo and he got to use naive subjects. I love it. That was the With big... the driving test. Oh, was it, did they have driving tests well, in was, that? He did, I think he did a driving test. Maybe it was later at the National Institutes of Health. But in the first one, like, he said... Why don't we test people instead of testing them on math problems, which nobody ever does when they're high? Let's see if they have better um, perception of of color tone or sound tone, mm-hmm. because people love to look at art and listen to music when they're high. Is that what you're referring to? That yeah, it was that study. Yeah, he did. It was a lot of like various psychological tests. Yeah, it was it was a big deal to get approval and to give it to people who'd never used cannabis before. Yeah. And, and you know, yeah. so he, he really pioneered, and um, he's been a big inspiration for for me for sure. And I I, th- I think part of why we this clinic that we started in Seattle, um, the Ames Institute, is kind of trying to see what is it going to look like, how we're going to operationalize. You know, uh, yeah, there's lots of research and scientific innovation that are going on now, but we need to to bring it to the people now. And right. And part of that sort of, we don't really know how there's it's the best way. There's an urgent need for this stuff. I mean, we've got this opioid epidemic wiping out yeah. tens of thousands of people every year. And, well, th- this, this kind, to my knowledge, yeah. this kind of approach offers a lot more hope than anything that's out there right now yeah absolutely especially what we've seen with ketamine fortunately it's schedule three now and so we can kind of get the basis of how some of these other medicines could operate within the system by working with ketamine explain what i've experienced ketamine recreationally uh three times i think and i don't understand what the hell i I don't know what i felt (laughs) yeah you know the first time i felt like nothing and then suddenly it was like i felt like i was at the late stages of an acid trip like i was coming down from an acid trip uh and then uh then i had a very long subway ride home from brooklyn or back to manhattan i remember that's mainly what i remember but um yeah, I don't really understand ketamine. I have some yeah. friends who love it. Yeah. And I, I don't think I'll do it anymore because the 
Now, of course, we're talking about, you know, getting high, hanging out with friends versus clinical use. But what what is the experience of ketamine? What do people feel? Yeah, it varies just from dosage to dosage. You, know, you can get it compounded and take it sublingually, where they make these little troches that dissolve in your mouth. And it's more of a loosening. It can be a little more MDMA-like. Um, mm. can be more for better for talk therapy, kind of like peeling back the layers of the onion, which can be very helpful for people. And it also has effects on neurotransmitters and boosts mood. Uh, etc. But as you up the dose, you can go from you know being really deep inward and or to co- a complete ego death sort of near death experience. Is that the K hole? Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's very, I kind of wanted very, to fall into a K hole just to <laughs> know what it was like. But. Yeah, it's a very very strange place. But uh, <laughs> at these ketamine conferences you go to, everybody's like, "Well, what's the best way to do it?" And every, there was this picture where everyone was holding a like a, a piece of an elephant, and sort of the take home was, you know, it all has uh, some mm. utility. And from what we see, it's like so many people are just so stuck in their heads or the, the chronic loop stories they tell each other mm. by having some of the higher dose experiences where they get that ego death and then coming back into themselves, they have more space, more awareness of kind of like their mm. daily thoughts. It's kind of kind of forces reconfigure a little yeah, mindfulness and then also mm. can bring bring through a lot of underlying issues. No, it's not like that for everybody. Some people have experiences like you where it's it's not as meaningful and profound, but a lot of it, too, is setting it up properly with the intention goals, what they want to accomplish, holding it properly. We try to hold it in the same way that MAPS is holding a lot of the MDMA work uh, just to to optimize the experience. And we've we've seen, you know, incredible results. Right. Hmm. With particularly with addiction or with you were talking about depression, chronic depression and PTSD. 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 Yeah. Yeah. It seems to be really great for that real despair, depression, just completely, you know, stuck in a rut, can't function. I had somebody who was suicidal every day, had a one shot of ketamine and it went from daily suicidal thoughts to once a week, Hmm. which is pretty significant. Um, so, and then for people whose depression isn't as severe, it still seems to help. But for a lot of them, I, I noticed for a lot of people, it's just more introspection, kind of like with other psychedelics, like that exposure therapy of, okay, maybe they came in, like an example, I had a client where she had an eating disorder and she thought that the ketamine journey was going to help her figure out her eating disorder or be all about eating disorder. It didn't bring up anything about the eating disorder with her. It brought up, uh, you know, earlier childhood um, experiences like uh, sexual experience or, um, uh, I'm trying to remember what the other one was, um, but Things that underlay uh, the eating disorder. uh, Underlayed it instead of the eating disorder itself. So that's a lot what it does is is sometimes helps people gain awareness of of unconscious things that are influencing current behavior. Right. And then it allows them to change. But that isn't always an easy process for folks. No, but it's like we were saying earlier about facing the dragons, right? Facing the, the monsters that are chasing you. Like she's experiencing her trauma uh, manifesting it through an eating disorder, mm-hmm. whereas it sounds like the trauma was sexual abuse or some other traumatic behavior or experience she had mm-hmm. um, before she was an adolescent, and it started to manifest that way. That's it exactly. Yeah, yeah. Was, it, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to also add, in addition to patients that typically identify as depressed or PTSD, um, I've been able to see in my work around pain and uh, palliative care patients who come to see me who say they have advanced cancer. Um, and I've got one patient in mind who had really stage four prostate cancer or was really suffering from a lots and lots of pain to the bone, you know, and mm. he said that he was going to 
try to drown himself. It's just extreme pain, uncontrolled, had broken through, and but but you know you dig into that, and so he came like, is there what you can you do for pain? Will this ketamine help me with that? It turns out that really it triggered some old PTSD in him, hmm. and uh, a from his childhood, traumatic, uh, have developmental trauma related to um, extremely abusive household, and he's in his 60s and 70s, so this is in the past. And then B, he worked as a um, UN frontline um, refugee uh, worker and uh, helped refugees in, in Africa during some of the major wars in the in the 90s and 80s really significant um uh, front line exposure to just misery and and then when you get cancer you know and you have pain like this it all kind of comes back again and and this treatment we did two sessions with ketamine and we did integration with beautiful music he was able to let go of some of that experience ketamine has anesthetic qualities so you can really relax into it forces you to surrender into that and and sit with some of the challenging things and be able to process them and have unitive experiences the same things that you get with a lot of the psychedelics and you know he his pain went completely away he's off opioids no he, kidding. what he is using is cannabis and right. we do a lot of cannabis education at our clinic as well we we see that there's a nice improvement in in uh, pain levels and and mood and patients who get to use high CBD or CBD THC combos and we have a, a great uh, wing of our clinic where we get to do that and cannabis laws liberalization is associated with reduced suicide rates yeah. there's some really nice studies coming out about that drops in male suicide rates over the years that they pass laws so something's also happening I think at that endocannabinoid level right. and ketamine also works in that pathway too there's been some research uh, published on that too so it's nice to be able to integrate that type of therapy with herbal cannabis therapy, with talk psychotherapy, with massage therapy, with naturopathic mm, medicine. Right. And it's, I think that's, you kind of turn on the, the kiln, the heating of the, of the glass, and now you can mold it. You know, uh, with these, good, uh, good image. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't touch the glass, though. I, <laughs> right. I had a chemistry, I remember a chemistry, Ms. Esposito always said, hot glass looks just like cold glass. That yeah. <laughs> was her mantra. Yeah, nothing to do with what you're saying, but um, are these sessions directed with ketamine, or do you just give someone the ketamine and see what comes up? Yeah, we definitely there's we believe in the non-directive approach. So we we interview them at first, we make sure they're medically and psychologically clear. We get their intention, their goals, and then they get the injection with uh, music and eye shades, and they're just invited to go, you know, inward. And you know, pretty much the first hour of a ketamine experience, it's it's not like MDMA or LSD, or you know, where people might be pretty talkative. Um, they're just very inward. Mm. Um, but but what I find is is the hour afterwards, there's a sweet spot as they're sort of coming down from it where they're really open really talkative and they have mm -hmm. a lot to share and i just invite them to share whatever feels comfortable it's not like a prying or pressuring right. but then from the material we get then we can take to the uh further integration sessions and, and really kind of make some headway so it just accelerates the whole process it's a catalyst for change but it's not a silver bullet sure it's uh, you know just just a piece of it it's a, it's a valuable tool and it's a hell of a lot better in prozac do you find that the the material that comes up is is it explicit or is it often um, couched in sort of mythological or symbolic, like a dream? Yeah, it's a combination of, of, all, of all the above. Huh. Yeah, some people it speaks to them more in, in mythology or images. Some people's experiences are very colorful. Mm -hmm. Some people's more black and white. 
Um, some people even had some people who say they felt the presence of other beings or other loved ones. Right. It's, it's, it's really interesting because, you know, it's, it's a synthetic substance, but, you know, with the traditional ones, they always say the spirit behind it. So what's the spirit behind this? But its nickname is like God in a bottle. So Ketamine. Yeah. And it's, it's a disassociative. Disassociative right? anesthetic. I mean, I, so I felt when I, in my experience, I did feel a bit like... I was watching myself mm-hmm. from a distance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if yeah, it would be interesting to have a therapeutic dose and really see what it's like at a you know much deeper level. Oh yeah. Because I just had that little skimming taste of it. Sure. Yeah. It's all, all about dosage and how it's set up and feeling safe, et cetera. I mean, yeah. all things you know. Um, but uh, also, you know, a big part of the healing, so many people just haven't had big spiritual transcendent experiences. Right. And we feel like that's a huge, I mean, one of the most popular books on ketamine is called The Ketamine Papers by Phil Wolfson. And, and that, that all over that book is sort of that idea that for a lot of people, a lot of the healing just comes from the transcendent um, experience. We live in the absence of the sacred, mm-hmm. you know. The, yeah. There's a book called In the Absence of the Sacred by a guy named Jerry Mander. It's his real name, Jerry Mander. Uh, and I'm going to interview him. Uh, we've been in touch recently. Um, I just love that title, and it, it resonates so much. And, you know, I feel like we have a – it's as if there's a, um, uh, an important nutrient missing from our diet. That's right. right. I, and I think it's – we do try to create ritual around these sessions because I think it, it is something very special that's happening to you when you go into an, an ordinary state. Mm. And it's, it's a, it's a time-honored traditional medicine practice that is cross-cultural and goes back, yeah. you know, eons. And we kind of came into this consensus reality trance and a certain sort of what he called default mode. Like we have this thing in our minds called the default mode network. It's actually a brain state that, that, um, that we've found in research that psychedelics seem to suppress that. So you can, can make different novel connections. But mm. the default mode network is necessary for our survival, for function, but it doesn't have to be the default mode of our society. Yeah. That's, that's the, I think that's what's happened is we turn that mode that's the only way that we relate with each other and that we do healing work but really um it's uh, there's a lot more realms that can be accessed a lot more states of of consciousness that uh, can be powerfully therapeutic and the best container socially is is a sacred one because it's it allows you to give people time give them respect you know and, and kind of make the most of it and yeah. you know I, I think there's also people do do psychedelics and drugs and have recreation and relief and all that kind of thing but even there it's important to be very respectful what is your working model of depression <laughs> that's a good question or, or, or maybe you have several yeah, working was, models but yeah several yeah i don't know you know everything it's so multifactorial um you know the gut they're saying all diseases start in the gut i think mm. so many people have nu- nutritional Im- imbalances deficiencies etc i mean we were raised on gushers and doritos and all kinds of nonsense and, and that's our our defense barrier so i mean you see so many people with autoimmune conditions these days where you know maybe yeah. previous generations they could withstand more abuse and maybe health issues later but a lot of people in their later 20s 30s already developing these things so i think that that's huge um also c- connection is vital i mean mm. just the way we evolve we're, we're social creatures we need right. to be you know in groups we we need each other i think a lack of connection um 
Gabor Mate had a really nice thing about trauma too, just you have the transgenerational trauma, which creates like disconnection from yourself, from others, your job, and then, you know, your environment. So I'd say largely gut issues, disconnection. And then I think like, like, a, and then that goes into kind of the spiritual, like if you're disconnected from yourself and your environment, then you're not going to you know, seeing th- things through the, the, through the, the bigger lens. Yeah. Um, and on also just, yeah, just disconnection with the ancient way too. I mean, we're, you, things need resistance to grow. And I don't think we pathologize a normal reaction to, to the, to the environment. Um, that, that could, could be something to grow or, or get stronger where we just want to save or rescue or, uh, a lot of, we're kind of dying from abundance and, and, and over comfort in, in a way. Um, too, so it, it, it's so complicated. Abundance of bullshit. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not, not. It's not real abundance. It's such a weird thing, isn't it? That this abundance, and yet we live in this in in this scarcity based yeah. mode. Mode, yeah, mentality. Like there's never enough. There's never yeah. enough. Yes. We have to fight and hoard and save and yeah and yeah yeah and, that, and that's I think that's a that's kind of the structural critique also of what the structural analysis of the social structure like socioeconomic conditions that create uh, um, you know uh, illness and yeah. and um, that's the mind body and there's a really great work called the spirit level by these uh, oh, yeah. researchers and, yeah oh great you know and the, the greater inequality there are is in society yeah. the, between the haves and have-nots the more the more you're going to have uh, problems and i think we we really um we live at that level we operate on that and the, and a lot of the trauma informed care talks about how uh, a lot of depression and anxiety states are really just unresolved traumatic issues and that your um your immune system wants to fight if you've been traumatized you get into a pain up a kind of guarding posture so your mm-hmm. shoulders and your neck can get get tight and your posture shifts and your um you know that impacts your digestion and and this work from a guy in uh, King's College, London, he's done all the psychedelic um, brain imaging studies. I'm forgetting his name right now. Is but Carl Hart, Carl Harris? Uh, Robin Carl Harris, yeah. He, he gave a talk recently at the Psychedelic Forum uh, last, last year, and he says that depression is literally a depression, like a valley. Like, you know, we can look out these windows and see the, the valley here of, of Brenton, that there's some kind of you can you're like a ball that drops into a valley, a depression, and you're kind of stuck in there, and it's tied to like circuits that aren't really like actively wired to connect you out of the ways to get out of that mode, and that when you do do therapeutic work, you can build new pathways, and you kind of get the ball out of the out of the depression, like mm, the actual like it's in a in a gully or something like a valley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Because there's a lot of research that shows decrements in in the brain in patients who say they're chronically depressed in areas that are, that are just sort of atrophied or under hypo uh, underconnected and. Um, and what's what's great is that these these medicines that we're talking about are psychoplastogens or neuroplastogens. Wow, yeah, that's, that's a good the, one. It's a good one. Yeah, yeah, that's what the term. They're like it's just sort of it makes it more plastic. You can right. actually. Mm-hmm. And we don't mean plastic like floating in the ocean plastic. <laughs> no. We mean changeable, malleable, yeah. moldable, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. kind of like Michael Pollan's ski slope analogy. You know, it just shakes up the snow globe and allows to form new connections. Because they mm. say the neurons that fire together wire together, and we just get stuck in these pathways. Right. These things, I feel, just kind of shake it up, and it's it's like exposure therapy. Anything you're hiding from 
uh, worried about, you know, it all comes to service. Like, you know, you, you can, now you can look at it from a different perspective and that helps people, you know, move through and learn from and grow. Yeah. My friend Duncan Trussell has a great analogy. He sees these thought patterns as literally as like eroded gullies in the dirt. Right. And, and like streams that are flowing. And so the longer they flow, the deeper they cut the channel. <laughs> and Safe. these sorts of experiences or meditation or, you know, falling in love or whatever, an extraordinary experience, it's like it floods the plane mm-hmm. and now new channels can be cut. Very cool. I like that. Yeah. And it's all, you know, I guess the point we're getting to here is that none of these channels are more real than others. There are many ways of perceiving your life, perceiving reality. You know, we can get into Buddhism here. The old, you know, pain is inevitable, but suffering is a choice. <laughs> you know, we frame our experience in ways that could include being depressed or not, and they could be exactly the same experiences. Yeah, it's so, so true. And I don't mean by saying that, by the way, I don't mean to blame anybody for their depression. That's not what I'm getting at. It's... But in in your descriptions, neither one of you described depression as uh, an imbalanced chemical state. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, that, that model was really like in the better living through chemistry, the big golden age in, in neuroscience. And really, which people should know is that that was all kicked off by LSD research. <laughs> exactly. The discover, the How the hell does this work? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It was like knowing about extraordinary. Like, well, what is the chemical underpinning of mood? And and I think uh, we're, we, we were like, you know, children who find one fact and think they know it all. Yeah. You know, and it... it, it and, and, and also uh, ignorant of the older ways. Like there, there was a much larger, you know, we're not the first ones to, we, we are the first culture to experience, I think, so much depression. I mean, there's a global epidemic and, and it, it's definitely tied into the way we live, but we think that, okay, well, there's going to be a pill for that and we're going to make a lot of money off of selling people that pill and that's going to be the cure. Those pills have definitely saved lives. Don't get me wrong. I think you reduce the anesthesia. It's called thymo anesthetic you kind of the highs and the lows sort of go away right so you're sort of here and though there are certainly other cases where people have had really severe like deadly reactions don't get me wrong i think pharmaceuticals are one of the leading causes of death in this country and so i'm not saying that they're great for everybody but they did they did create some model to get people in a sort of controlled state right they're numbing agents essentially Yeah, and yeah. sometimes you want it, like it's too loud. You have to like turn it down, um, and but that it's not a complete model of healing. We're not done yet. We're yeah. we're kind of sort of holding on. And, and what do you um, think about ibogaine? Are you interested in working with that down the road? Fascinated with that. I went to psychedelic science. Um, two years ago and uh, I used to work at a methadone clinic so mm-hmm. I had huge interest in that at the conference that was one of the most uh, attended talks I, I saw because you know I'm a harm reductionist I think methadone you know serves a purpose as as do opiate replacements but they're also you know inadequate because under under underneath it all is, is is trauma and what's beautiful about ibogaine you know they call it an addiction interrupter where people can go and take this and they're no longer physically 
or, or psychologically addicted to it. And um, that, that you can do that is, is just uh, phenomenal. Yeah, it's like a pushing a reset button. It, exactly. And uh, there's just so much we could do with that. I've even seen where there some people will use like microdosing Ibogaine to get people off because some people, there's concerns that giving people the massive dose of Ibogaine might actually you know be a little bit too much for some because traditionally they only take high doses a couple times. They call it like breaking open the head. I think you've interviewed Pinch, Daniel Pinchback. He wrote he wrote a book mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, about that. So you know, and some people with addiction can kind of be in fragile states, but it's it's just phenomenal. And it seems to reboot all the neurotransmitters. And but but really, it seems like it heals on that psycho spiritual level, where you know, everyone with addiction, anyone who's putting a needle in their arm and, and injecting heroin every day, is in a lot of pain, like emotional. Uh, psychological there's always just in, insane abuse history so you can just give people methadone and it's almost like just giving someone prozac for their depression mm-hmm. like like it's uh, until you address what's happened to them and their story and what's driving it uh, which is hard to do and it could take forever and people are people need help sooner and the, but these things can quickly at least give people kind of uh some perspective on their life yeah it sounds like neither of you really uh ascribe to the disease model of addiction of addiction or of depression which is sort of where i was going previously yeah i mean the there's certainly um there's definitely family histories there's definitely cases where people multiple generations of people have potentially some genetic abnormality which reduces the number amount of chemical in their brains it's always going to be bell curves and all these um you know uh pools of, of genes that we have, but I don't think that's the by and large. I think that's a minority. Mm. More, I mean, it's just, it, it wouldn't, it just doesn't seem to me that it's more likely. And then the reason we think this is because, I mean, there's lots of amazing, st- they just published the psilocybin for depression randomized control trial. It just was presented last week at the American Psychiatric Association, mm. the Hopkins group. I mean, they their effect sizes are again eighty plus percent response and rate. And this is for chronic major depression. Major chronic depression major. that has not been successfully treated. Treatment resistant major They've depression. Tried everything else. Yeah, this is yeah. A, you, you, you know the FDA was always very picky on yeah. the enrollment for these studies, so you had to really get the bottom of the barrel, so right. to speak, the sickest and the illest, and they can transform those cases, those patients, those subjects compared to the group that didn't get this therapy with preparation, deep psilocybin dosing and integration. And they do that a couple of times. And, you know, they wrote in their paper, um, they just like it's a poster published at the APA, which is the largest global mental health um, professional organization, um, saying this, uh, the, the large effect, we are like five times higher than what's considered a large effect. Yeah. So like yeah. the paradigm, and they, they put that in quotes, just to sort of, I think, poke at the fact that your paradigm is so off. We don't even have a paradigm to appreciate this type of depression therapy. So w- something is wrong about the way we're approaching this. Where because you, you you learn about disease through its treatments. You learn about disease by knowing what alleviates it. Hmm. Especially, you know that's how we learned about vaccination or germ theories. You know, well, you gave that to somebody and they got better. And if we've trained generations of mental health specialists where we've completely 
hidden the evidence of psychedelic or non you know experiential drug assisted therapy the, nobody knows about it or they've they if you've done your own homework but it's not taught so their whole model is based on a very small set of therapies so that's that to me is will impact how people think about depression it it almost feels getting back to the, the earlier um analogy of a nutrient it almost feels like there's a vitamin that's missing from the modern diet that psychedelics provide you know like (laughs) it's like we're suffering from psychological scurvy or something (laughs) and and mushrooms have vitamin c and i say oh it just went away you know just eat a few lemons and you're better it's amazing it's just that connection aspect it connects us to ourselves like our whatever it is that we're we are before we're born into a body kind of strips us takes us back to that child like knowing um you know as ram das would call it loving awareness yeah and and then and then you can then then come back and kind of work with what's going on with 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 whatever whatever you're but but just calling it a disease i mean i feel like that's disempowering to people i I mean it's yeah if if you say it's not it's you know you're like you're blaming or criticizing it's like we're still we're acknowledging there's a transgenerational piece and that changes the genetics and it lives on within the blood etc but there's it's it's workable but we also know that trauma affects the dna uh, two or three generations That's down right. the road. Yes. So right. this whole, like, even as you say, I, and this is, I wanted to get at this because the disease model is both empowering and disempowering, mm-hmm. right? And so when you step away from it, you have to be really careful that people don't misunderstand. Right. We're not saying you are responsible for your depression, mm-hmm. although I guess we are kind of saying you can be responsible for your healing. That's right. Oh, no, so it's empowering it's, in a sense. It's very important for people to, to not give away their their inner healer to the to to Pfizer or you know to, to right. Kaiser. It's not. It's we we are we evolved. Pfizer uh, or Kaiser? You're like a rapper. Or something, right? <laughs> you keep coming up with these lines. It's like talking to Al Sharpton. <laughs> what did you put in this mint? Today, Jamie? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, he never talks like that. Uh, really? Just, yeah, just in front very, of a mic. Very unusual. Some people <laughs> blossom in. Not front of microphones it's amazing (laughs) kaiser pfizer yeah (laughs) sorry interrupted you man no it's a good it's thanks for uh for picking up on my my rhythm (laughs) i I mean i think people really um have a lot of we do believe in the in healing capacity and i've learned a lot of that from again the naturopathic medicine uh tradition they they have this latin phrase vis medicatrix naturae the healing power of nature and that systems have an inherent tendency to to shift towards healing I know you're you're a, a fan of evolutionary psychology. I, I remember reading a paper about psychoactive substances as just evolutionary. Um, uh, like there's a paper on Aboriginals in in Australia um, and like hunter gatherer societies, and that people would eat these neurotransmitter analogs in, mm. in psychoactive plants, psychedelic plants. It's a way to gain energy for their systems. It's just, it's just kind of a thing like, that's sort of similar to the nutrient model you're talking about, that this helps to feed the system and give it that additional critical awareness and get out of those, uh, you know, depression wells. I think there's something to that. The other theory is on um, uh, sexual selection and psychedelics help people um, 
uh, kind of be more eloquent, and that that helped them find more mates. And that well, that's Dennis McKenna now, yeah. or Terrence McKenna's <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the, the stoned about, ape theory. That's yeah, right. And there's yeah. another guy named Richard Doyle. He wrote uh, Darwin's Pharmacy, uh, oh. which is a nice. Uh, he's at Penn State, and he kind of built up on on that. And I th- I think there's because people ask the question, well, gosh, you know, you're in an altered state. How is that going to help you survive? You know, you're going to get hit by eaten by a lion or whatever. Well, it it might help you. You might help your you survive because you find a better mate because you're able to, you know, put things together in a more novel fashion or right. able to communicate in a much more novel way. Which, you dance better. That's <laughs> or you, right. Or you're less you're less self conscious about right. your dance. <laughs> it feels better. Yeah, yeah. And and you know, getting back to McKenna's theory, you you're you have better pattern recognition, so you might see that lion coming sooner you know mm, right so there there are other uh, advantages um stanley krippner who we were talking about i think before we started recording sort of my buddy mentor um he had an interesting thought along these lines i don't think he's published it anywhere but it, uh, it's something i think about often um hypnotic ability appears to be very genetic Related to family and all that. You mean how easy you are to be hypnotized? Right. Okay. Right. So how how easily you can enter that sort of trance state, hmm. um, and and it's related to other psychological features, boundaries, and rigidity, psychological rigidity, and all that. Um, but he made the point that relating to what you were just saying, Sunil, uh, that when placebo and altered states of consciousness. And I guess we could say placebo is an altered state of consciousness or functions through one, right? A belief system and all that. Um, When those were the primary methods of healing in hunter-gatherer people, people who had greater hypnotic ability would have a great advantage because they would be more healable, (laughs) right? Makes sense. Through placebo or, uh, you know, some sort of ritualistic um, healing. You know, healing. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that that would have been selected for, highly selected for in our ancestors. Oh, wow. And now, the you know, the world has changed in such a way that it's either not selected for or maybe even a negative in some ways. So it's as if we're losing the capacity to heal ourselves through... Um, through our own sort of mental control of our, you guys know who Wim Hof is. Oh yeah, the the Ice Man, the breathing techniques. Yeah, he's a good a good friend. He talks about this all the time. How like no, you heal yourself. Your mind can you know he he sat in ice water for two and a half hours. He climbed Mount Everest in fucking shorts. This guy like he's done all this crazy stuff that is theoretically not possible right yeah the body cannot withstand that kind of extreme cold and yet he does it all the time and he trains other people to do it that's the beauty he's not just this anomaly he shows other people how to do it and they do it it's amazing i've i've sat in an ice bucket with him wow (laughs) it's pretty intimate that's been pretty wild yeah i think we do have that and uh, that's really interesting to think about how that's been selected for and what i oh 
what I always think about is, I think it was the grandson of Carl Jung, son or grandson, was one of the consultants for Madison Avenue. It was one of the main people that came across from Europe and helped develop modern marketing techniques. Hold on now. That's not Jung. Don't blame that on Jung. It's, That's Freud. It's it's Jung's progeny. I'm, no, no. No, I know who you're thinking oh, of. Was it, it's oh, Edward Bernays. Bernays, yes. Who was Freud's sister's son. Oh, Freud's sister. I'm yeah, sorry. And he okay. started, you're right, he started the whole um, modern advertising. He was the first to do focus groups. Hmm. He did. Uh, he also helped overthrow the government of Guatemala. He worked with the CIA. Hmm. So all this mind control. He wrote a book called Propaganda, which is very famous. Yeah, and it's yeah. like you tap in, so you can use this knowledge about hypnosis. Sorry to jump on you. I, Thank you. I love Carl I, Jung. I, 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 I'm much happier that it wasn't Jung <laughs> now. I, I'm I glad relief. that I, yeah. I uh, learned. Fuck the, Freud. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> love Jung. I like Jung too. But that's the that's the thing. Like this power, this knowledge can be a tool for control. And and for marketing and you can tap into those latent desires that people have for connection for newness like i was thinking reflecting on oh hey here's a brand new blank new and approved right yeah. and it's like people and in psychedelics we talk about rebirth people have rebirth experiences and you have this innate desire to want to be like to be to be new again you know like, yeah. like from trauma for example you want to like kind of come anew and like the, the, the phoenix and yeah but so in so instead of us sort of using that as a way to heal you it's like now you have this new and improved i want to i'm going to sell, sell you the next version of the same same thing you bought last last year and yeah and it's a it's kind of a, a way that you use that um desire the innate unconscious desires to feel to feel new to feel sexually desired to feel um connected as as tools to um exploit and that, that's kind of the dark side of this kind of medicine and and you know we we all we just have to acknowledge that as from a public health standpoint that we're constantly being bombarded into altered states through through advertising yeah you know you you touch on something there that i think is really important and um something that bothers me about this resurgence you know, I've been working, well, working with, I, I first heard about MAPS in the early 90s, my first class in grad school. My professor introduced me to MAPS, and then I had uh, lunch with Rick Doblin uh, in like 95, 6, something like that. Wow. And And I, at the time, I thought beautiful dreamer this is never gonna happen man you know keep trying rick but you're you know you're wasting your time uh and so i'm so happy in my lifetime to see what's happened and that there are people like you guys who are doing this kind of work i couldn't have imagined that that would have been possible you know given where we were in in those days um but one of the things that really bothers me about this is I see people who are leading ayahuasca groups or giving DMT um, sessions to people who have no training, have no fucking idea what they're doing, are just winging it. They're charging a lot of money and they are defenseless against the ego inflation that comes with delivering these sorts of experiences to people and you know it i i see people who i like who who i you know i, I won't say i admire them necessarily but they're good people and i see them starting to think of themselves as little demigods and the ego just gets out of control how do we protect against that 
Yeah, great, great question. I mean, you guys are already steeped in a in a yeah. clinical uh, tradition in which you're going to get cut down by each other. I'm yeah. sure, you know, yeah. if somebody starts wearing robes and sashes <laughs> and things, <laughs> yeah. getting a little too much tie dye in the in the <laughs> in the hospital. No, it's right. true. You got it's good to have a, a a college to keep you keep you in check, you know, and yeah. to have peers to have humility. Right. There was that podcast I was sharing with you when we were in Colorado. I've forgotten the name of the guy, but he has that talk about sort of the dark side of the psychedelic renaissance. And um, I'll, I'll think of his name later, but he, he said it's almost like um, antibiotic resistance. So he was saying that, you know, we, we use all these antibiotics in, in animal feed and stuff, and this has led mm. to a resurgence. It kills the bugs, but then now it's generated super bugs, right? There's all, all kinds of super dark resistant things. And so he said what's happening potentially with egolytics is that you can if you if you don't use just too little of it or not properly that you're actually ending up strength creating super egos you right. know like, like super duper inflated egos that I thought that was a very interesting uh, yeah yeah definitely you can see it because I mean my experience on those on those substances is the ego like I'm nothing <laughs> I mean I'm everything but I'm also nothing you know and that in, that connection to the universe is humbling in a beautiful way, a, a liberating way. But I definitely see some people. And honestly, the first few times that I did psychedelics, I wanted everyone to trip. I was like, this is going to say I was fucking little Timothy Leary, man. I was I wanted my parents to trip. I wanted like I was. Running around, you know, <laughs> a little fucking <laughs> drug pusher. Yeah. Uh, thank God that didn't last long, you know. But yeah, you were going to say something. Yeah, I, mean, I think for anybody, there's there's that initial kind of ecstasy before the laundry and the integration, and, and yeah. there's a huge difference between you see people have been drinking for ten, fifteen years versus someone who drinks two years and think they're they're ready to pour. I heard an interesting interview with Dennis McKenna, who's been working with us forever, and and he'll take people to um the amazon to have these experiences but he won't lead it himself he says he doesn't feel in any way shape or form uh qualified so i mean it just makes me think like in this 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 world we have like how can we have some sort of regulation it, it just seems by first of all getting it out of the illegality will at least open up for hmm. opportunities i mean it seems like you know the religion of the west is science so we have to you know show it with data first and then once you know it's it's kind of medicalized a bit then hopefully spread it back into the community where it started anyway with the indigenous and, and empower the public and maybe some sort of rating system i mean you know you go to an airbnb you see reviews how the person is how long they've been practicing maybe some sort of certifying body or credentialing yeah. or training to be like okay well i could drink with so-and-so but they don't have this you know and there's downsides to that too like sure. the, the making it sterile taking all that but how to find that balance i guess that's the work of our generation here i did um five meo dmt uh a massive dose only once and it was a <clears throat> wild experience very um not the way it was described to me, you know, I, uh, the God molecule or whatever, you, mm -hmm. you know, all that stuff. I mean, I, I ended up just being overwhelmed with grief mm -hmm. and like all my sort of defenses against the, 
sadness that was occurring to people in my life just uh i lost all defense and i just was like overwhelmed it was like watching my friends drowning and i couldn't help them and it was horrible uh, i'm glad it happened it was useful i've never had an experience with any psychedelic that i would say that i regret i've had difficult experiences but nothing that i am not glad happened you know um, but anyway, as I was coming out of that experience, it was a guided experience. And the person who was guiding it um, as I was sort of coming to consciousness and wiping the snot off my face and all that, um, she put on some music. And it was like, you know, Enya or some, you know, schmaltzy. Mm. And my first thought, my first conscious thought as I was coming back to myself was, when I write the Yelp review, I'm going to suggest that they change the music. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, just some helpful criticism here. Maybe a little Bach instead of the Enya, you know? Yeah. Sail away. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, that, that reminds me, uh, at the MAPS training, they uh, unveiled for the first time their code of ethics, mm. uh, the psychedelic code of ethics. I think they just posted a blog post the other day about, you know, their new ethics um, code. And, I really felt that day when we when we broke out into our small group, the other therapists that were around, like <clears throat> checking on the day. It's like this. I felt like this is like actually us taming fire for the first time. Huh. I, I felt like that, you know, this because this is an extremely powerful medicine and modality. That right. It's, it's like fire. Like yeah, Prometheus. you're right. You're right. Yeah, it's very much. Yeah, it's powerful stuff. And it's like you know, yeah. you know are we going to burn down whole whole town with when we tamed fire we could burn down the whole town and right. everything wouldn't or we have like fire safety plans and you know and, and allowed areas of fire and and a proper approach to it so I, I hope people will start to see that and read that and model that because that built into that code is a lot of the safety issues psychological safety like boundary issues what kind of relationship you want to have with people before during after mm -hmm. preparation integration cultural appropriateness all, all of that's there it's there's so much sexual abuse associated with the ayahuasca centers in right. peru a lot of dudes think they're you know I'm gonna. I'm. Your healing is involves me fucking you. Yeah. <laughs> horrible, horrible. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the sad truth. Yeah, yeah. So people really do need to be careful. I was talking to a friend the other day, and and this, and this relates to what we're talking about, like trying to find a place for these uh, natural evolved needs that we have. Mm. I was talking to a friend the other day who I can't remember who it is, but. Um, he was talking about a conversation he had with someone who worked with gangs in L.A. Mm -hmm. And he said to this, he or she said to this um, anthropologist, you know, why they're shooting each other, right? Like they aren't the problem. Why aren't they going to Beverly Hills and shooting some white people, some rich people who are actually, you know, behind this structural uh, inequality that is causing so much of their suffering? And, you know, I've always thought of that as like the typical divide and conquer thing. And, you know, the same thing that the, the British and the French and everybody, yep. the colonialists did in Asia and Africa, like divide them up, you know, yep. make sure there's a lot of conflict in these, you know, um, countries so that they can't rebel. Uh, but what this anthropologist said was that there was a death wish, that these teenagers have a death wish. And... 
what he meant was not for death itself, but for a symbolic death. That's right. That's right. That teenagers want to die so that they can be born as adults. Mm. Right? And it makes so much sense. You look at, you know, basically any traditional tribal um, people, they have rituals. They have uh, a renaming. Often the rituals involve some sort of altered state of consciousness where the kid will go off and eat some mushrooms or peyote or whatever and then come back and describe the dreams or fasting. And the shaman will give them a new name, a new identity, and it's a new life. I never thought of that. But so much of the depression and the suffering of teenagers is that they want to die. They want to be done with being a child. That's right. And we don't give them a structure for that. That is such a really, really fundamental point about how these this work will be part of how we can reintegrate back into being like human beings that are to yeah. go through development. That's what the Buiti did in Africa, uh, Gabon, with, with Ibogaine. It's a, it's a liminal. It's a rite of passage. Mm. It's a passage. You, you have to die. You have to have a, and it's a extremely, it's extremely high risk. I mean, emotionally, you, you, at the, when you're falling into that hole, it's like you have to be really, really brave. I mean, you have to give this. It's it's a lot of fear. You you're letting go of things, and it's that's that is the that's the work of it. Yeah. And it's so it's not like an easy peasy you know thing. And I think people can can experience that together. And so that maybe that's what's missing. What well, has yeah. to be hard, right? If it's not hard, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything. The the accomplishment is empty if it, if you didn't work for it. God. Yeah. Wow. Just beyond that, too, just just everyday primal needs. I mean, we're just in there, our boxes constantly. We wake up, look at our box. We're in a box. We get in a box. Stare yeah. at a box to come back. You know, right. like yeah. Beyond yeah. rites of passage, it's yeah. What do you, what do you magnify? You know that that death thing. You reminded me earlier. We were talking about um, these like single or or just a few uh, high dose psilocybin experiences can alleviate end of life trauma. Um, Charles Grobe has been doing work down at UCLA, I think, for years. I had him on the podcast years ago. Uh, he actually studied with Stanley. His whole yes, career he started called, with Stanley. In Brooklyn, yeah, in, yeah. The, in the lab. I remember he told me that. Yeah, yeah. And he said one day, he told his dad, when uh, after he'd worked with Stanley, I'm going to be a psychedelic psychotherapist. Like that, He called his dad up <laughs> his one His dad day. was a dentist or something. <laughs> he was like, are you crazy? <laughs> right. And that's, that's what Charlie did. He did it. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, anyway, I was, it reminded me of, uh, I don't know if I've ever talked about this on the podcast, but when I was a kid, I had a memory of where I was before I was born. And I know this sounds ridiculous, but this was my experience. Past and, life. Pa- okay. Well, not of any place specific. It was just, I remembered that before I was alive... I was in a place that was comfortable and beautiful and wonderful. And, mm-hmm. and you know, when I'm five, six, seven, whatever, I'm going to sleep at night, I remembered that. And it was like, oh, yeah, okay, so now I'm here. But that was great. And someday I'll go back there, and it'll be great. And then as the teachings of the culture entered into my consciousness and I felt myself becoming more 20th century American, male, white, you know, all that shit. I felt that memory slipping away. And I felt 
you know, now it's like maybe 12, 13, 14. I remember thinking, I'm going to lose this. I can feel it slipping away. I can feel it growing more distant and fading out. So what I need to do is articulate the memory because my brain's becoming more wordy. Thoughts are, are words now. I need to like plant a flag with words before I forget this so that at least I'll remember the words, mm -hmm. you know? And now here I am, 57, I don't remember that feeling, but I remember that I had the feeling, I remember the words. And I think the closest I come to remembering the feeling, well, maybe the closest I've ever come was the first time I took mushrooms, uh, and I felt like, like it was a return to a place that I'd always been in. And there's this incredible familiarity. And it really like sort of uh, renewed that connection and that memory. Anyway, the point of the story is that I think that maybe part of the healing process is that other people have that feeling as well. That they, it's like a memory is jarred in their head so that they know that dying isn't an end. That birth wasn't actually the beginning. That there's this continuity yeah. that underlies this finite life. Wow. And that drains some of the anxiety away. I mean, I don't know. You you yeah. work with dying people. Do you find? I, I think, I mean, I haven't unfortunately had enough experience with dying people with taking psychedelics. But definitely when, because there's many ways to achieve these kind of states of experience, too. Um, people do it through ritual, through dance, through song, through connecting with their um spiritual traditions but people do you know when you get into that sense of um, um, comfort at the end it's about feeling like you know you're you've said your goodbyes you're going to another place this body was, was a sort of a vehicle and it's that memory again of maybe what you were you knew when you were a very small when you have a good death right good, good death is is about having that closure and 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 feeling like you can say you know have the loved ones be there and experience love and all the basic things it's and i think what happens in religion we're supposed to sort of be told this stuff i mean you grow up in a religion and you're told yes you are everlasting or you know and i think you know a religion probably emerged out of like just facing the reality of death mm. but it's not enough like it's not it's, it's like it's too wordy it's too it's too authoritarian it's it's you don't get it into your bones into right you need the experience. Yeah. I think you hit it on the head. I mean, from, from what I see with people, I mean, you can read all the books and intellectually know it, but with these, it's, it's sort of a, an embodiment, a, a full knowing um, from the people I've seen with, with the ketamine and, and sort of other medicine um, is it, just realizing that just the constant state of impermanence and change, but that nothing's ever created or destroyed. It's just sort of lives on so so people are stripped down to just awareness they realize that you take away everything there's still awareness and with that awareness remembering that there was awareness before yeah it was as if awareness was born into this body mm -hmm. and, yeah. then, and then it's programmed and then we forget who we are and we have all these attachments to things and then it's like i think aging well is almost like unprogramming and remembering Mm -hmm. um, and, it, and if people aren't able to, to do that and get that third person, then it's really, it's really hard to, to, 
to have like that memory, like what you what you described. Yeah, it's um, hard to let go because yeah. you think that's all there is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's so funny. You said, I, Plato said that all learning is remembering. That was one of his one of his you know dialogues, and I know they were drinking uh, psychedelic uh, kaikion at the the Elysian Mysteries. Mm-hmm. The, all these Greek Greco Roman thinkers, mm-hmm. and you know maybe. And he had the very famous cave meta- cave analogy that we live in these dark caves and just look at shadows and nobody goes outside and sees the tr- ultimate reality. A lot of that, a lot of writings like this probably you know have psychedelic undercurrents. If you know, under, it's not like they were so different brains and they had mm. they had these same substances that we have now. Yeah. So it's certainly um, and very nice yeah. to think about. Exactly. How did you guys get into this? Like Sunil, were you already in med school, or or when you started thinking about these alternative uh, college approaches? It was college. I uh, grew up in the buckle of the Bible Belt in Oklahoma. I was a minority in a um, South Asian American minority in an all white town with a well, it wasn't all white, but it was a huge racial tension. Um, they didn't desegregate until 1970. The public schools there, and so it hmm. was it was a tough, uh, tough road and lots of fundamentalism. And I got interested in science, and then but but I knew the power of religion. And when I went to college, and um, I studied philosophy, religion, and chemistry, and tried to kind of knit the three together. And um, philosophy turned out to be the place where the, the study club was like, you should explore other ways of knowing. And that's that's where I learned about cannabis and experienced it directly. And I felt, well, geez, I've been completely miseducated. This is a very typical experience. <laughs> um, you, you know, it's a very typical. So I learned, I felt the flow state for the first time uh-huh. and felt that the meditation books that I was reading in, in my youth, actually, this is what the state that they were talking about. I uh-huh. just never could achieve it. I didn't have the, you know, I didn't have the set point. We had intergenerational trauma of being refugee children of grandchild of refugee from is, India, Pakistan, the divide and conquer, uh-huh. you know, uh, partition that killed right. lots of people, including most of my grandmother, all of my grandmother's family. So I think <clears throat> just needed those, those chemical or those botanical allies to help me ex- recover and, I thought, well, this is really something. This is the healing. This kind of medicine can really heal. And I wanted to study that and work in medical school to create, uh, get my licenses so I could help study this stuff and 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 prescribe it for patients or wow. be part of that so, so you knew from the get-go this is where you were trying to go age 19 yeah, yeah. 20 well probably. before med school yeah yeah pre-med yeah that's right and yeah. you know i terence mckenna would come to berkeley in those days i didn't even know who he was and, and unfortunately he passed away i went i missed some opportunities but i did get to work with um people that discovered like uh, endocannabinoid signaling, the new the new science that explained like retrograde activation in the brain and how actually systems how we, how we achieve homeostasis in our neurotransmitters and our Im- immune systems and that was exciting to me and to uh, at Berkeley for med school or undergrad under, undergrad yeah. uh, and I came up here to Washington to to start medicine and um, did you ever meet Shulgin? I didn't meet the Shulgins unfortunately I did not. Mm. I knew some of the doctors that would hang out in their circles. Yeah. I went back to Berkeley and studied medical marijuana um, and worked with some of the doctors that um, were kind of part of the Shulgin's testing testing grounds, I guess testing, you could say. Testing group, yeah. <laughs> Sasha Shulgin was the chemist who sort of reinvented MDMA uh, when in the 70s, I guess, somewhere. And 
Yeah, so people who don't know about him, Google him. He he was he just died a couple of years ago. He was fundamental to a lot of the things we're talking about. And he's a pioneer also in sort of the freedom to explore your consciousness right. as a fundamental human right, yeah. including through chemicals you make in your lab if you, you know, if you so choose. If you're yeah. a genius. Yeah, and, yeah. I mean, there's yeah. high risk with that, but I think there's a fun... He was a really strong believer in the, uh, in the abil- importance of being able to explore your different states of mind. And, and uh, uh, it was amazing person that even collaborated with the DEA and they were friends, you know, chemists, 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 collegiality. Yeah. Was, well, he was so respected. I, I don't remember what he invented, but it was something that's used everywhere. Mm-hmm. And the company, I think it was 3M maybe. He worked for Dow. Oh, was it Dow? Right. Yeah. Oof, evil. Um, <laughs> but they basically said, like, you know, we'll pay you for the rest of your life to do whatever, to you do whatever the fuck you want. <laughs> Just don't ask us for any of the money we're making on your invention. Yeah. Yeah. So he had a lot of cover, I think, because he was so successful, you know, before he became a freak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, have, I was lucky to be in a place that really Berkeley had a lot of people that were pushing the envelope like that. And, sure. and it was just, I guess, in the air. You know? And what about the palliative uh, end of life care? Yeah. I mean, that come about? It, it's just, uh, I was always, uh, as a, st- a high school student, I was interested in like the rights of people who are dying and that I, I kind of grew up around the time with the Terry Schiavo mm. debates and whether people have a right to die when and how they choose. And, uh, like what is there's suffering and then there's unnecessary suffering and, and who gets to decide when you what's the limit of of your if you if you know you have a terminal illness and so I thought a lot about that as a youth and then when I went to medical school I really I got a chance to talk to hang out with and see what doctors who take care of patients who are you know six months or less to live diagnose diagnoses and it's an amazing field where you get to see and help facilitate really powerful healing for people and closure in life. And I felt like that uh, that's a good area of medicine that really was very integrative. You had spiritual health, you had physical health, emotional health, psychological, and it was it was very um, it was a place where you could do do a lot. A, a little went a long way, and it was. And you just used the word healing in a very interesting way. Oh, because you you said you could affect a lot of healing. But you're talking about someone who's dying. Yes. He, so healing doesn't mean getting better physically. No, healing is a, it, yeah, it, it, palliative care, We healing is, uh, refers to being being better in some way than you were before you got the illness. Um, and that means, hmm. I mean, better uh, in terms of emotional, um, you're, you're more, you feel more integrated, more whole. Um, you know, it's kind of like post-traumatic growth. You, you have, have a trauma of, of, of an illness, but you don't have, and it could, could be that, you know, it's incurable and there's no cure for an advanced cancer. But um, you at least, you, like the year that you live, is going to be so full of richness and joy that it's almost as if that was 10 years rolled into one because every day is new, every day is novel, as opposed to like mired into depression, hopelessness, despair, um, withdrawal, or, you know, severe pain, which is a, a lot of times it's just bodily symptoms that can, if you just sort of treat those, People can naturally, um, and, and you have a supportive situation, people can heal. They may die, yes, and that's unfortunate. But um, and I, at the same time, I want to, I'm working with a wonderful doctor that 
works on new methods to heal, treat cancer with plant medicines, and I think people should have access to new treatments, whatever's their right to try. I'm a strong believer in that, but um, you might. It's also always important to work on just the healing, whatever, accepting what it is, surrendering a little bit and not feeling the need to control as much. That's mm -hmm. what we call by healing. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a much more accurate use of the word than the typical, you know, get better, heal the wound, get better. Actually learn from, grow from the wound in a way. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. And so, Nathan, what's your, uh, what's your path to yeah, it's kind today. of kind of a long roundabout. I mean, I just went into nursing because I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do with my life. My parents were nurses and uh. um, found out that was difficult, but eventually ended up in, in psych. And I have a partner who's a nurse practitioner, and it just seemed like something interesting to do, but I was completely delusional. I didn't fully understand what I was getting myself into. I was like, oh, these poor people with chemical imbalances, I'm going to go and just write them pills and give them, you know, like yeah. kind of like the insulin to their suffering. Tweak the dials. <laughs> yeah, it's like, this is, this, this is great. Um, and I can get off the floors with nursing. So meanwhile, while I'm in graduate school, I um, legally, in a... Um, in a legal country was able to ex experience uh, mushrooms and um, that just completely flipped the, the switch on on everything like that we weren't bringing the transpersonal stuff into any of the classes I was doing we weren't talking about any of this healing <clears throat> and it got me really going down the the route of shamanism etc and kind of in the midst of everything, my brother had a, a psychotic break, which, so I'm working on the psych floors in, in downtown Seattle, and it just changed my relationship with, you know, how I understood mental health and, and also psychosis. And it just gave me more hope because I was looking in, in other avenues. And um, yeah, and, and then sort of it led me, I, I'm kind of on my own healing journey with, uh, you know, food and, and, and sort of realizing how a lot of our thoughts create our suffering and, and that there's there's some, some control and workability um, there. And then, you know, I've just kind of followed the breadcrumbs and I learned about ketamine, you know, a few years ago. So I was like, this is an exciting way to kind of legally mm. bring some of this healing now. And I went to a ketamine conference and this guy was actually sitting behind me there. You know, you talk about synchronicities and I think they're happening all the time if we pay attention to them. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we got to talking, and we were interested in this. We didn't know how it would play out, so I was kind of in my own private practice just doing some ketamine, and a lot of great results, but it was too labor-intensive to do all by yourself because, I mean, it's, it felt like shamanism. And, and, you know, what we're trying to do now is like almost like shamanism under a capitalistic model, which is, you know, damn damn hard to do but then they opened up this integrative healing clinic and sort of in the midst of everything last year i uh you know i had a small bowel obstruction ended up in the icu and almost died hmm. um so and then i couldn't put on weight afterwards and i got real sick and i was kind of hopeless so i'd never tried ayahuasca everybody I was thinking about going to peru etc but i didn't want to get malaria hmm. seemed kind of risky even though i knew of some reputable ones etc um, and then I, you know, heard about the Santo Daimi and, and, and was led in um, by someone to that. And, and from that, I, I drank uh, the ayahuasca, the, the Daimi, um, once. And within a month, I put on like 10 pounds. And then it just slowly got better 
kind of healing things and then combo has been a huge part of my healing with the gut it's it's a fascinating medicine of itself so i guess just experiencing true healing combo tell people what that yeah is. so combo it's a frog poison um they it produces a secretion in the amazon th- these frogs um they'll only produce it there if you take them out in captivity they won't do it and it's this really complex oh, pe- really? peptide yeah it's it's fascinating I didn't know that. so it needs all the nutrients in the trees and, and just everything has to be just right but it doesn't harm the frog at all so they'll just scrape off these outer secretions and they put it like on a wooden stick and you know and they, they sell it around here and there's practitioners who get certified a good one is called IAKP. It's, it's you know as good of a regulatory body as you're going to get at, at, mm. at, at this point. And what they do is is they um, they take like an incense stick and they'll burn just just real superficial, just enough to blister your skin. And then they put the frog secretion uh, on you know the the newly burned area, which they call gates. Uh, and before you do this, you have to drink two liters of water within about 15 minutes. So what happened, and then you have these huge buckets by you, and you basically feel like you have the flu. You, you know, you, you vomit profusely for about 20 minutes, um, and you think you're just going to vomit. You know, like when I first took combos, I was like, yeah, I'm going to throw up a whole lot. But you find out there's a huge emotional, uh, psychological mm. uh, component, too, where you're purging just a lot of emotional you know energy because you know, we're constantly absorbing each other's energies traumas stories um and 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 so much of that comes out so you you feel like shit you feel like you're dying and then but afterwards you feel glorious grounded lighter um so and, and i learned on my own journey too that a big part of it too was just you know emotional healing and, and how do you how do you separate that so then by learning about these modalities and healing myself you know i i felt like a snake oil salesman just prescribing pharmaceuticals to people and i, I think mm. I, I think that that is can be helpful and i'm not knocking people who who, who, who do that but i feel like there's there's some better ways and so there's some better we need to broaden our toolbox and 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 especially after dying last year i'm like well you know i just really the, the time is now i'm not gonna waste my time doing things i don't believe in or half-heartedly i'm gonna you know try to advance so i you know just really believe in this did you hear what here. you just said after dying last year? Huh. <laughs> <laughs> Nearly dying. <Yeah. laughs> Nearly dying. Or maybe dying. This is the new you. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, but then I talked to someone else and they said, you know, we're meant to die over and over yeah. and over again. I mean, yeah. do we do we ever die? We're just evolve. Something has to die to, yeah. to, to grow or, 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 or re- be reborn. Yeah. So, so, yeah. But, but yeah, something, something shifted. And then with meeting with these guys, it's just super exciting. And, and we've kind of set the ground with the ketamine. And um, we just like to be a part of this. And then the training we did with MAPS, with the MDMA, I mean, there's just really amazing people doing great healing. And I feel like we have some of the maturity now. You know, in the 60s, we had these molecules and Mm. we're basically tools of the shaman without the responsibility or um, the understanding. Um, Getting back to the fire metaphor, like we burned a lot of shit down in the 60s. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of people got singed. So maybe we'll be more careful. What do you guys do? I mean, you're both working with a lot of suffering. And, uh, you know, in in your case, Sunil, with people who are actually physiologically dying. How do you protect yourselves? Yeah, the care of the carers is a really important work, and we we try to every day for each other 
like spend an hour listening to talking about our our day for that day and checking in um, and in a circle where all the students and senior doctors, junior doctors, the front office staff, we all do a daily check in together. Oh, good. You know, at the same uh, at the same time, and then and we we do some breathing together and the, to sort of ground ourselves before we talk and um, share and. And then we do a closing circle, too, you know, where we put our hands around each other and just sort of breathe together, really just try to sync it up and keep it. That's a small, like a small thing. I think each of us has to do our own inner work, um, make sure we, like, you know, take our proper off time, leave at the right time, not spend hours. We're still working on that, and everyone is encouraged to do their own work, you know, healing work that they need to do. It's an ongoing process. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really smart, though, that you have that um, intentional communal sharing. Even if that's just uh, a check-in, it tells everyone that it's okay to feel things and express things and, you know, that they're part of a group, I think. Because, you know, I watched Casilda, my wife, psychiatry. She had none of that. And for 20 years, she just took it all alone. Yeah. You know, and she'd share some with me, but that's not the same thing. I don't, I don't know those patients. Sure, I don't know. You know, I haven't been in a room with them, and it, I think it takes a real toll. It's, it's like a little poison every day, and. Absolutely. I mean, for me, it's just it's extreme self-care. But even with that, it's still a, a challenge because a lot of times people who are doing this kind of work tend to be empaths. They're more sensitive right. people. So they right. feel, you know, I think everyone underestimates, you know, sort of the empathy of, of, of some people. Some feel so deeply to where almost like the barrier between the other and them it comes meshed together. And then you, you, you take that on. So it's like how to how to move that energy out of yourself, too. So I think it's just essential to be doing their own own work and taking great care of yourself and then have other people to, to, to work with too to shift it. I mean, some people have techniques where they kind of almost picture like kind of a barrier around them or, you know, wear protective stones. So I think, I think it's kind of the journey of the healer though, to figure out how to, how to modulate that. Cause I think so many times then the healers get sick themselves. Yeah. And yeah. that's actually a common um, theme with, with the healer where they'll have illnesses, etc. Um, but sometimes it's like some people say you're only, you can only take people as far as you've been. Um, hmm. I think there's some truth to that in some ways, that not necessarily that you can't be helpful or supportive, but to be super effective on certain levels. Um, so I think some of becoming a better healer, too, is like getting sick, taking on things. Yeah. Blah, and then, then The then, wounded healer is the most yeah, powerful. Renegotiating. Sure. Yeah. So you can, I think, go through that. Through that you, you get stronger, and it's, it's a constant work in progress, I think. I remember uh, I was like 14 or so. I, I did a life lifeguard training thing. And I remember being amazed and just like terrified when they explained that when you swim up to someone who's drowning, sometimes you have to punch them in the face because they will drown you. They're so desperate, they'll crawl up on your head and they won't let go of you and you'll drown under them while you're trying to save them. So you swim up to someone and before you get within their reach, you go underwater, you grab their ankles, you twist them around and you come up their body in control 
And, you know, it's like you're mugging someone. You need to totally dominate them or they'll kill you. I'm not saying that's applicable to your therapy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. But, like, the desperation of someone who's really sick and flailing about can be deadly to a to someone who's trying to help them so true and they don't they don't teach that it almost has to be you know acquired you know because you can go the other other way where you're not empathetic enough and you're too cold and but people can tell and it's like you know meeting them enough and i think also being selective of who's worth your energy because you can't work with everybody you only have so much energy there's a triage that has to happen who's 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 worth who can who can you realistically help and then but but ultimately they have to help themselves i think i like what uh this great buddhist teacher jack cornfield he has this helped me early on in my career because I had sort of a savior complex. I felt like, yeah, I have to help them, or it's some sort of a, a value thing on me and my care if, if they're not getting better. But he talked about, you know, you plant seeds, but you try, you try to get attached to the results and mm-hmm. realize that some of the seeds you plant, they may take root later, but, mm-hmm. but, but that's all you can do is, is plant the seeds. And then I think at the same time, yeah, protect, protect your energy and, and sa- save enough for yourself and take as good a care of yourself as you're doing the others. If there's the imbalance, then, then you can't truly be that medicine. It suffers and people you know, pick up on that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Easier said than done. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's a lifelong training, right? Um, you guys, if, if people are listening to this and they want to reach out to you or they want to, I know you're doing, you're working up to a study, a trial. Yeah, there's a couple of, um, Dr. Standish, my, my partner, uh, she's a naturopath and a PhD. She's, um, in the process of raising money to, um, develop the site to, to make GMP, good manufacturing practice, uh, ayahuasca. Uh, it's under MAPS' um, sponsorship. So people can go to, um, I think it's maps.org, and they can donate over there for our, this project, and they get fiscal 501c3 tax-exempt donations right. to support this amazing research that I think will help to bring a really powerful medicine um, to more people in a in, um, help so bridge this world. At maps.org, you can donate just to maps, which then they use your money, however, you know, in oh, different right. things. You or to, you can choose a specific you, trial you want to work that's on. That's right. We haven't, we're still building the website, the page for that, but right now you can write for. Um, ayahuasca development and, mm. and maybe mention Ames and that will help to earmark it for Ames for our, our clinics um, ayahuasca research right. um, and there's ongoing research also happening um, with cancer at the clinic um, trying to do advanced care for patients who have um, advanced forms of ovarian cancer breast cancer lung cancer um, and that's an on, that's an ongoing project. We do we're doing cannabis studies. There'll be um, soon a, um, a a trial where we're going to give people uh, inhaled cannabis, and they're going to use an app to see how impaired they are. It's called Druid. Uh, it's a really nice um, uh, like a self assessment check in, so you can better mm. manage. You know, I don't want people driving unsafely but i also want don't want people getting penalized for if they're not and this uh psychologist has developed this nice tool called druid anyone can download it for 99 cents even now but we're hoping to kind of do it in some of our patients interesting uh, our, our cannabis team is heading that up mary brown uh so that's there's some of the different research projects that are going on and our website is aimsinstitute.net and that's where you can learn about our um our clinical services and um, based here in Seattle, in Seattle, Washington. Yeah, right. yeah. So if you're hoping to get ketamine uh, assisted therapy, you got to come to Seattle. 
I think in in the Seattle area, we're the only ones really that have a psychotherapeutic model around mm. it. There's certainly a lot of other places where you can get ketamine care, but it's basically IV uh, IV infusions and and may not have as much preparation or or somebody being with you. Right. And we're also doing group ketamine it's, uh, medical visits and group ketamine sessions. Where yeah, and also trying to develop a couples therapy ketamine as well. Because I mean, there's a lot of people giving out ketamine. <clears throat> But they don't properly screen or give you the integration. They're just kind of running you through. They're still seeing it through the lens of the pharmaceutical in- industry. Is mm. just insert this chemical. This has this response, and that's much what they're trying to do with the S ketamine. I don't know if you've heard of the, like the nasal spray that came out. Oh right, because yeah. ketamine got breakthrough approval for depression. So they basically want people to come in, and they've jacked up the prices on this old old drug. They isolated just one component of it. It's totally a, just a, a marketing ploy, and. Uh, and they want people that just take the drug and then sit, sit, observe for, you know, just sit in the office for a couple of hours and then leave. But it's like a huge missed opportunity. There's so much that can be done right. while, while, while they're, while they're under this. And, and, and then they want people to do it kind of daily or frequently. It's like our model is for a short period of time, you, you know, you do three sessions and, and then over you have six weeks, over six weeks and you have three integrated uh, sessions. You have a preparatory, and then you know. Then we might transition you to something else. Make sure you have a psychotherapist. Make sure you're protected to kind of get the fire going. But this isn't like we want to get you get you on ketamine all the time, right? It's like a new addiction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and then we're trying to help integrate other models like the cannabinoids or the qigong class or. Uh, we got a body worker because we feel like healing is if certain things are out of balance it has to be the whole approach it's it's not just the, the academy yeah yeah i hear that all right well thank you anything else uh, we should say before we wrap it uh, i think that's it thanks, that was, that thanks was fantastic so yeah. thanks for doing this guys i'm so grateful thanks thank for you. coming on a sunday you, you skipped church for this oh <laughs> uh, i went to church yesterday we did one of that little ayahuasca work so, uh, yeah. <laughs> the other church yeah all right, thanks all right. I hope you dug that. Smart guys, huh? Ames Institute in Seattle. Uh, I don't know if if you have an issue that you think would respond to that kind of treatment. Maybe it's worth a trip to Seattle to see those guys. They're pretty special. Uh, if not, hopefully there are similar therapeutic approaches near you. Um, thanks for listening. I just want to remind you sunbasket.com forward slash TS. You're doing us both a favor if you sign up for this, uh, me, because it shows that people listen to this podcast respond to these sponsorships, which is uh, always helpful. And um, for you, because it's a really good product and you're going to eat better. And at least even if you're a great cook and you go to the trouble of making yourself delicious meals every day, Uh, This is still going to be a lot easier just because uh, the prep work, a lot of the prep work is done for you. So that's sunbasket.com forward slash TS. Also, um, as always, I want to thank everybody who supports the podcast, whether it's through Patreon or through PayPal um, uh, or by using my Amazon affiliate link on the Web page, bookmarking that as your path to Amazon. Uh, It's all super helpful, pays for Diesel pays for insurance, pays for my AAA membership, and uh, at the moment it's helping to pay for this new engine. <laughs> so I'm especially grateful at the moment. Um, yeah, and if you can't afford it, don't sweat it. If you don't have any extra cash, take care of yourself, take care of the people close to you, and um, yeah, just be well. 
it always helps if you write a review or just tell friends about the podcast if you dig it. And I guess you must because you've been listening for two hours, eight minutes, and 42 seconds. Thank you. Here's Mom and the great Carsey Blanton. Okay, Mom. uh, Tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay. In our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death. Anthropology, tangentially speaking, paleo modern, and talking out of my ass. <laughs> she didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. Design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals. Right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day body is an animal, doesn't ask for much, a little music and a soft touch, why don't you let it out to play, your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest, you wanna shut it up but give it a rest, you're gonna die one day. to the ground.